Hi, everyone. We've set up this Being an Engineer podcast as an industry knowledge repository, if you will. We hope it'll be a tool where engineers can learn about and connect with other companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. So make some connections and enjoy the show. You know, I think the first thing that struck me was um, a sense of craft that a lot of these, um, you know, the, the professionals uh, on the line, the electricians, sheet metal workers, welders, um, you know, there's a lot of pride in their craft, um, just to kind of see that at work, how they went about their business. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. We're talking with Arna Langry today, who holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in product design from Stanford University. Arna has worked within a variety of design areas from toys to sports to premium products and is the founder and CDO of Spanner Product Development, where he and his team develop exquisitely crafted consumer products in the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, also, this is a, a special treat for me because Arna was one of the first people to hire me way back in the day after I had just started Pipeline. And, and that job was one of my first, what I thought of at the time as, as big contracts. So it's it's very cool that I get the chance now to interview Arna. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with me. Well, thanks, Aaron. Uh, absolute pleasure to be here. Okay. What made you decide to become an engineer? Yeah, I, I don't know if it was ever really a decision. It just was kind of the flow. Uh, my dad was a mechanical engineer, um, so I had a pretty good idea, I think, early on uh, that engineers got to sort of dream stuff up and then make them. Um, you know, as a kid, like a lot of people that end up in this field, uh, anything in the house that broke was mine to tear down. You know, i just fascinated by how everything went together, like, what all the parts and pieces were, how did they work? Um, you know, from washing machines to transistor radios. Uh, when I was a teenager, I worked in uh, my dad's fabrication shop, just go for on the assembly line. So, uh, you know, again, just getting a hands-on sense of, of how things were, uh, how things were made, assembled and all that. So it just kind of felt like the, a natural flow of things uh, to just go on into engineering school. I'm I'm curious about your time working in your dad's fab shop. What were you mentioned Gopher? What were some of the things that you did there, and how do you think they built a foundation for you? Or or maybe what were some of the most useful things you did to build that foundation? Yeah. So just quick context: uh, they made um, food processing machinery. So so big machines, lots of stainless steel. Um, you know, the electrical controls, the motors, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you've probably seen one of their machines there in every single Burger King in, on the planet, the machine that, that flame broils your burger back there. Mm. Um, you know, I think the first thing that struck me was, um, a sense of craft that a lot of these, um, you know, the, the professionals, uh, on the line, the electricians, sheet metal workers, welders, um, you know, there's a lot of pride in their craft. Uh, and that's probably something my dad recognized when he hired them, but, um, just to kind of see that at work, how they went about their business. Um, you know, my job was deburring sheet metal or 
putting uh, stripping and, and putting terminals on the ends of bits of wire, you know, degreasing uh, stuff that was going to go in the machine, just all the stuff nobody else wanted to do. Um, but I think it gave me um, a very visceral experience with, with material, you know, to understand um, how stainless steels, you know, in sheet metal form behaves, say, um, uh, and, and what goes into all of that, you know, uh, why it's important to be you know, tidy about things that, that users uh, may never see. Um, you know, the electrician jumps out, um, you know, he was very fastidious about routing wires in the control boxes, making sure all the terminals were labeled properly, um, wires were cut to the correct length. Um, you know, it was a work of art. Uh, but there's, there were reasons for doing that. You know, it was sort of eye-opening that way. So you're, you're, in my opinion, anyway, a very successful um, leader of engineering teams at this point. You've had Thank a successful you. career. Yeah, you're welcome. And I, I would love to try and kind of reverse engineer how you got there a little bit so that people listening to this can try and adopt the same mindsets, the same behaviors and practices. Do you recall when you were working uh, back in that fab shop, you know, doing the um, the grunt work, for lack of a better term, what was your mindset then? W was it one of uh, I'm feeling put out that you had to do this this grunt work, or was it one of of um, uh, this is great? I'm I'm really happy and grateful that I get the opportunity to learn these things. Yeah, I, I think much more the latter. Um, you know, I found everything in there fascinating because you know my dad would take my brother and I to the shop. You know when when we were growing up, so we were no stranger to it. And to get to finally work there, on the one hand, felt sort of a privilege. There was also a sense of wanting to prove myself um, that I'm not just there because I'm the boss's kid and I'm going to mm. be a slacker. Um, you, you know, I wanted to prove to the guys on the floor that, um, you know, I was happy doing that work. I could do a good job, um, you, you know, and all of that. Um, uh, earning your place. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, eventually you graduated from, from the shop and um, uh, earlier in your career, you went on to design toys. I wondered, mm -hmm. are, are there any memorable toys that listeners might remember? And, and maybe <laughs> what was your favorite one that, that you designed? Yeah, uh, I, I think probably the most memorable that, that um, most people go, oh, yeah, I had one of those um, was the Vortex football. So when oh, I was yeah. looking at, at odds on, which was the company yeah. that, that they started by, uh, with the Koosh ball. Um, uh, and it was launched by, um, I'm another mechanical engineer, by the way. Um, uh, so the vortex ball, you know, with the tail on it and you could throw it farther just cause it had a tail. It was more aerodynamic. Um, you know, everybody remembers that toy. So, uh, it was super fun to work on that product line. Um, cause we were always trying to expand, is the next one going to be you go even farther? So it has to be more aerodynamic. And how do we do that in a toy? And, you know, the hours of going back and forth between the model shop and the parking lot and throwing my shoulder out and, um, you know, was super fun. Um, I got to go on one of the shoots for the Saturday morning commercial um, when John Elway was their spokesperson. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm like right off camera with a box of, of Vortex balls, like feeding them to Elway so he can huck them down the field. Um, you know, lots of, lots of really fun stuff like that. Um, my favorite, I think just as a designer, 
Um, probably not too many people know, but um, you might know the company Klutz. Um, they have, uh, they're more like, uh, like craft books. They're more like a publisher of activity books and things, but all of their books typically would come with uh, some material that you would then use, you know, to, to accomplish the craft or whatever it is in that book. Mm, okay. Um, and I did a bunch of stuff for them, but my favorite was, had nothing to do with the book. It was a, um, a parachute toy. Uh, so the, the founder there had this notion and he actually built this first prototype of a, of a ball about the size of a softball or grapefruit with a big parachute stuffed in it and a, and a piece of webbing that you could then, you know, sling it up into the air. Um, but he wanted it, the parachute to open elegantly right at the top of the arc, you know, and just poof magically mm. at the top every time. But of course, you know, like any other parachute toy, when you're a little kid, you're trying to throw it in the air, the parachute opens on the way up. And it's, you know, frustrating as can be. Um, so he challenged me to come up with a way to do that. With, you know, no batteries, no mechanism, just naturally the way the parts came together that that, that would happen. Um, so it was one of those sketchbook aha moments. Um, you know, just realizing that if the ball opens this way, then, you know, as the air flows around the ball, there's low pressure on the sides and that's going to pull the ball apart. So if we could make the ball fly this way. Um, so I ended up putting an extra piece of leash on there that came around and hooked to the far side. And then the drag on the leash kept the ball together. But as soon as it stalled out and the leash would kind of catch up, it would unhook and the ball could open. Okay. Um, Brilliant. So it was kind of all of those elements coming together um, as I'm sketching away, it just sort of stopped and went, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> and, and ran to the garage and prototyped it and, and it all worked. How big of a, a, um, part in your design process does sketching something out play? Mm. I mean, just, just the act of no CAD, just a pen and a paper or a pencil and a paper. I, I think it's huge. Uh, uh, CAD is an amazing tool. Um, and like any tool, I think it, it has its place. I think early on in that conceptual part of a process is, is not the place. Um, I think it, it tends to have us commit to something prematurely where sketching, whether it's in your a log book or, or on a whiteboard, um, it's much more sort of throwaway. You just want to get stuff out of your brain. Um, and so you can sort through it on paper or on the whiteboard or whatever. Um, uh, it's not, you're not as committed to what you're putting down. So you can just kind of, you know, move on, you know, scribble it out or just start over or just keep going. Um, you know, in CAD, you, you have to think about it a little bit. You have to kind of build some, uh, underlying layout or skeleton, um, to kind of keep going. And that, you know, we don't, it's not as throwaway. You don't want to go back and, and just toss that. So, um, I think getting fluid with, uh, with sketching, you know, sort of thinking on paper, um, is a, is a super powerful skill. How gifted do you think an engineer needs to be with their hand sketching abilities for it to be a really useful activity? I mean, do we need to be 3D uh, artists on paper or can we get away with, you know, just kind of blocky things, 2D shapes? Yeah, I think if you're sketching in your own idea log, um, you never have to actually show that to anybody. Um, so you can just kind of leave your self-consciousness, uh, you know, 
uh, at the door, if you will, and, um, and just go as long as you get a sense for what you're putting down. Um, that's, what's most important. I do think it helps with the fluidity. Um, if you're confident in some sketching skills, but super basic, um, you know, often we're sketching mechanical concepts in, in section and 2d elevations anyway. Um, you don't have to get super fluent with, with 3d, but it does help to be able to kind of do a quick sketch, um, in perspective, you know, so yeah. buy a sketchbook that, you know, there's plenty out there in the market, you know, like spend time practicing drawing cubes and cylinders and whatnot, um, with a little bit of perspective. Um, it, it can help a lot because you, you do sometimes need to get to that point where you're communicating your ideas to others and you're trying to generate, um, you know, a kind of collaboration. Um, so it helps to be able to communicate clearly in sketch mode as well. Um, but I think that comes second. Yeah, that's probably an underappreciated skill that uh, a lot of us should spend some time developing. Um, I don't think I ever had a class like that in college, but that would have been a really useful one, just basic uh, principles of perspective and, mm -hmm. and 3D sketching. Yeah, I've got a, a question for you that um, this is from a, uh, a, me as a business owner. I'm curious what your, your thought is on this kind of a completely different subject here. Um, uh, working with, with junior engineers who are, you know, relatively inexpensive to employ, but, but they lack experience and mm -hmm. senior engineers who are super productive, but also very expensive to employ. Do you have kind of like a, a, a rule of thumb or best practice for how many of each group should be part of a given team? Uh, yeah, I think as an engineer, my answer is it depends. Um, of course, I, I mean, I, that's a, a kind of a common conundrum. I don't think there's any right answer. I think there's a right fit for any particular organization. For instance, at Spanner, um, you know, we're a consulting firm. We're in Silicon Valley. Our rates are pretty high. We know that. Um, so our team is intentionally built around a much more senior staff. Um, we've had a couple dozen engineers, designers, um, and they average 20 plus years of experience. Hmm. Um, you know, at, at that size, um, it's, it's tough to make economic sense out of, um, you know, having somebody on staff who's not as efficient with their hours, um, and also takes some time away from senior staff who are, you know, in the mentorship role and kind of showing them the ropes and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you can make up for some of that in the economics of the rates that we charge, but a deadline's a deadline and it's the work's got to get done. And, you know, so it tends to create more overhead than it's worth. Hmm. Um, but in larger organizations, say as spanners now, you know, we're growing. Um, I think having more headroom gives us a space to bring in um, younger engineers because uh, there's advantage there as well. And not just the economic uh, advantage of lower rate and whatnot, uh, you know, designers, engineers that are more, say, more fresh out of school, out of a certain, you know, curriculum, they're going to bring fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, um, tools um, that they've learned along the way, um, you know, and that's, it, it's competitive advantage, or at least it's, it's kind of keeping up um, with what's happening in the world in, in that sense. And then there's just the larger, uh, you know, kind of paying it forward 
you know, because uh, we all had mentors. We all had people who spent time uh, helping correct our mistakes and, um, For sure. you know, showing us the way. Uh, so, you know, we, we love to be in that role as well. So we currently have three folks kind of at that level, okay. um, you know, hopefully more as we grow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, you brought, you've been involved anyway with bringing quite a few products to market. And uh, one of the things you're very good at is doing so quickly. Um, do you have any kind of like prized um, strategies or, or favorite processes or, or tricks? Uh, maybe tricks isn't the right word for it, but tools that you use to um, go to market quickly, really accelerate that time frame. Yeah, you know, and um, you make me think of, you know, once in a while a client will come in and, and um, you know, I want to hire you, your senior guys, and um, you should be able to get this done quickly. And we, we tend to redirect that conversation that, you know, if we're good, it's good because we do things well or we do things right or appropriately, not because we do things any more quickly. Um, you know, it, there's, there's a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Induction. So in electrical engineering, you know, there's the harder you push, the harder, the more resistance there is, right? There's, there's, um, I think in design, there's sort of a natural law of the same ilk, right? That mm. the more people you put on it, the harder you try and push, the more resistance you're going to get. It just, the, you increase the odds of things going wrong rather than decreasing them. Um, so you know, one of the things we're fond of saying too, it's, it's, um, you know, an adage, but that, uh, make the right thing and then make the thing right. Um, I think that comes from the agile school. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm still not convinced that agile works in hardware development, but I think the adage, uh, is appropriate that, so in order to save time, we actually dedicate an appropriate, uh, amount of time up front to make sure that, we're super clear on the product definition um, that before we get into CAD design concepts and whatever, we're taking the right amount of time to, to get really detailed in the product requirements doc, to have all those debates or arguments about different features, um, you know, holding that up to the mental construct, right. Of a, uh, of an MVP, a minimally viable product and um, making sure everything is pointed at, uh, the appropriate user experience and really hammering that out. And that may involve some engineering investigations, you know, kind of first order reality checks, um, kind of thing. Um, yeah. Maybe how, how, how do you know that you're really clear on the problem and that you have all the right requirements? What are some tools that you use to develop that? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is simply kind of the collective wisdom around the table and, you know, enough, scar tissue from things having done wrong in the past. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, if we need to do some reality checks and reach out to other domain experts or do some, um, uh, you know, back of envelope calculations or, or kind of do some quick layouts or XYZ stacks and to make sure volumes are working or, you know, whatever it is, um, that phase will include those kinds of activities um, to make, to validate, but then, you know, it's a, um, there's a threshold of confidence, um, where you're never going to get to that hundred percent. 
but at least you understand if there are things that are unanswered, at least you understand the questions better um, and how to prioritize going into the, the design phase. Yeah. What are a few of the biggest mistakes that you see engineering teams making on uh, new product development projects? Yeah. Uh, well, aside from not spending enough time in definition, um, uh, I think the aforementioned uh, sketching. So getting into CAD too quickly um, and and committing before spending enough time kind of getting broad with, with concept development. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, getting too far in CAD before uh, doing any kind of prototyping. Mm. Uh, you know, so if you're kind of getting into the nitty gritty uh, of, of, the, of the model in CAD and you haven't made anything yet, you're probably kidding yourself about something. Um, you know, so it's the prototype early and often thing. So that's kind of another mistake is uh, you can never make too many protos. Um, you know, start super coarse. Uh, there's nothing wrong with popsicle stick and, and paperclip uh, prototypes, you know, as long as it helps you visualize what's going on, um, you know, is, is entirely the point. And then, and then gradually build the integration and sophistication of your proto along with the, with the concept. The CAD is the, is the tool that enables all of that. Um, and obviously you can do it in a lot of analytics and things, um, but make sure you're living in the physical world yeah. uh, alongside um, a friend of mine who is also on this show, Joel Williams, has a phrase he, he calls uh, real good versus feel good. And I think as engineers, sometimes CAD can be feel good, but not real good, right? Mm -hmm. we, we all love getting into CAD, but like you say, sometimes it's not the right the right tool or at least not the right time in the project to, to use that tool. Uh, you've, you've worked managing engineers and design teams for a long time. Have you found any effective methods of allowing engineers and designers the freedom that they need to feel creative and, and happy with their autonomy, but, but also giving them enough guidance so that they don't spend too much time going down rabbit holes that, that, you know, just aren't going to be fruitful. Yeah. I, you know, I think as a, as a manager, um, managers, we need to just sort of start with a, a healthy dose of humility and understand that, um, uh, whatever we have going on in our heads is, you know, probably the, not the most effective answer is just one answer. And to give our, our teams the space to do that, you know, hire great people and let them do their thing. So um, I think first making sure the team has the tools, you know, and the practices um, support structure um, to operate within um, and they feel safe about um, making prototypes that are disastrous um, because you just learn more that way. Um, and then if there is a, you know, providing oversight, but in the, in the context of, of, of making sure everyone's st staying on point, staying on the objectives. So the things that come out of the definition phase say, um, to, to use that as the touchstone and redirect to objectives. If that's what needs redirection, not necessarily micromanaging, the execution of the design, um, you know, so what if you would have put the rib in a different place? Um, it's, you know, 
managers need to kind of get over themselves in terms of that. Um, and then at the same time, you know, insist on, on, on regular design reviews. Um, you know, everybody needs that critical feedback. Um, uh, make sure you leave space between reviews to let engineers do their thing, flex their muscles, but have those moments where you can come back and make sure that we're still on point with, uh, with whatever the objective is. Yeah. Yeah. That, those are great answers. And I, I really like that you mentioned, um, helping engineers feel safe. That's something we talk about quite a bit here at Pipeline is, mm. uh, making each other feel safe. And, and we're not talking about physical safety. We're not worried that someone's going to sucker punch us in the parking lot or anything like that, but psychological safety, right? If, if someone makes a mistake on the team, are we worried that other team members are, are going to pounce on us and, and, you know, uh, the, say something mean or nasty? Or do we have the faith and confidence in our team members to know that if we make a mistake, um, others are going to gather around and support us and say, Hey, don't worry about it, man. We got your back. Mm -hmm. And I think making, uh, people in general, but in this context, engineers feel safe is one of the, the great tools that we have as managers to, um, facilitate that, that creativity and productivity. Yeah. 100%. Well, I'm going to take a very quick break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Arna Langry today. Uh, Arno, what what are a few of your favorite tools for managing product development projects? Could be, um, you know, something general like having one on ones with people, or it could be a specific app you use, or maybe there's some kind of uh, machine that you love for prototyping. Just mm -hmm. anything like that. What what comes to mind? Yeah, I, I think we were just talking about one. I mean, in, you know, in terms of the one on ones. Um, staying in touch with the team, checking in with people, um, you know, what are the concerns? What, you know, uh, what kind of, you know, emotional state sounds a little woo woo, but, um, you know, w where is everybody at, at that moment? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, we all have lives, right. And, and just keep that in mind, um, uh, and creating that space for people to, to excel. And then having a, a space, um, or the materials, you know, if, if we're, if we're encouraging people to make quickie sketch prototypes, we'll then have some materials and some tools to do that kind of stuff. You know, even if it's the hot milk glue gun and, and the aforementioned popsicle sticks and foam core or a box of, of Lego technic, fantastic tool, um, for, um, quick mock-ups of, of, of linkages and mechanisms and everything. And you can go nuts you know, probably as we all did when we were kids. Um, I think digitally, um, we've, we've not, we've looked a lot and we've not found sort of the single digital platform that works, you know, from, from A to Z, um, and other, uh, you know, design firms that we've talked to, they find the same thing. Everybody kind of ends up using a few favorite apps or platforms and then patching it all together with smart sheets and, um, you know, uh, other things to make it work for them. Um, uh, and that's what we do as well. We've got some pretty monstrous, uh, uh, Google sheets and spread and smart sheets that we, we've put together. Um, they still break, 
but you know, we, we put them back together and they work fine. Yeah. Beyond that, other apps, uh, you know, as a design firm, we use um, Harvest for, for um, you know, timesheet and expense tracking and invoicing and those nuts and bolts stuff. Um, we use uh, Notion um, for, uh, it works sort of like for us, like a title page um, so that, you know, for any particular initiative or project, we've kind of gathered everything in one place. Um even though it links out to other tools and then stuff like Miro for, um, you know, shared whiteboards, um, uh, you know, it's a collaboration space can be pretty effective. That's great. I had not heard of any of those. I'm going to check them out for myself now. <laughs> All right. Um, well, shoot, this, uh, might lead maybe as a good segue into the next question. What, what's one tool and I'm using that word, you know, kind of loosely, that that doesn't exist, but if it did, would dramatically increase the speed with which engineers are able to develop new products. Um, it it can be even mythical if you want. It doesn't need to obey the laws of physics. So feel free to be, you know, uh, pretty out there with your answer if you want. Yeah, I I think it would be that mythical platform um, where it's some mashup of things like Miro. So there's some collaborative space where you can be really loose. Um, uh, where you're just dropping a bunch of screen captures from things you find on, you know, on Google images, or it's, um, you know, mind mapping, very loose, nonlinear kind of things. Um, but, it, you know, at the front end gives you a place to plan, um, you know, to capture those objectives in a way that you can continue to check in with them and, and have a living document in there that constitutes the plan. Um, and then sort of follow. So take like Microsoft project. And I want to, I don't want to rain on them, but it's just, it's an easy example. Um, that kind of Gantt chart thinking is great for planning. Right. But in, in my experience, um, and especially the bigger the project grows, um, you need a staff to manage Microsoft project, uh, to track your, uh, your actual program. And sometimes the roles reverse, like you feel constrained about pivoting, uh, to, to, you know, to get to the best design, but you're constrained by the Gantt chart, you know, Oh my mm. gosh, we can't, we can't break project. Um, it's, you know, it, t- <laughs> it tells us that we need to do these things. Um, so something like that, that was way more fluid and flexible and move through the process like we do. Um, uh, so I don't know, Aaron, maybe you and I should retire and build that, but, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, that's a great answer. Um, uh, let's see, can, can you share one of the processes? We we talked about some tools and this is a similar question, but one of the processes that your team uses that, that has proven to be, um, pretty beneficial to your customers and, and the projects that your team works on. Yeah, I, I think it's it's creating some uh, working documents, very simple stuff uh, to have handy for conversations with clients. So, for instance, um, you know, uh, a storyboard. I mean, we're we're engineers. That's supposed to be the domain of, say, industrial designers because they know how to sketch people. Um, but really. Um, uh, a storyboard is a super efficient and effective way to capture uh, 
what we're designing for. It's ultimately the context. And it doesn't, you know, for consumer product and stuff, it's about um, what's the user experience? What's the problem for this person that you're trying to solve? How does a product work into their life? And it can just be a super simple stick figure kind of thing. Um, uh, and then the other is um, uh, sort of the, the, the Gen 2 list, if you will, um, that as um, feature ideas come up or feature ideas that already exist for the product, but you need to, you need to peel them away as you're distilling what is the, the, the first product, say, of this company out the door. Have a, keep a list somewhere of all these things um, as a repository for stuff that you can use for, for the next-gen product. And it, it, it gives clients a place to put it mentally. Like, we're not just saying, no, we can't use that idea. We're saying, ooh, great idea. Let's put it on the Gen 2 list so we can stick to your go-to-market strategy. You know, we won't delay this program because that's going to take some time to develop or whatever. And it really helps um, keep the conversation fluid and, and keep the relationship really collaborative. Um, sounds simple, but uh, it makes a big difference. So this storyboard that you're talking about, is mm. this like kind of like what you would see? I don't know if there was a documentary about how a movie was made. You've got like little cells in which there are pictures depicting, you know, one scene of events and then the next and then the next. How, how does that apply to a product being developed? Yeah, no, it is. It's it's exactly like that. Um, uh, you know, the the objective for everything with that we do, whether it's a consumer product or um, you know a bridge or a new uh, uh, engine technology for a boat. I mean, who knows? Engineers do a lot of different things, but what we're doing fits into some larger story, uh, and and keeping that really front of mind. Um, what it is that we're trying to solve for. What is that ultimate objective? What's the problem that somebody in their life out in the world or lots of people have that will be made better by what we're doing? Uh, and, and that's the story that we're working inside of. So it, the simplest way to think about it is to, is to kind of reel back to high school English. And if you remember that curve, there's the flat part in the front, that's exposition. And then there's a bend in the curve that's the conflict and then the rising action, the resolution, those four elements, you can save the denouement stuff. Um, it's not as critical, but the exposition, like who is this client? Who is this user? Um, what's their world like? Are there competitors that we have to think about? Are there cost constraints? You know, what are all, what's all that context that informs the design? And then the conflict is, you know, uh, uh, my boat uses too much fuel or whatever it is, you know, we need better technology. Um, it pollutes the ocean. Uh, then the action part, well, that's you doing the design. So all the little problems that you got to solve along the way, all pointed at the resolution. And then, so imagine what that is like, what's the story look like when you're done? Um, you know, and keeping that front of mind and that we're all working inside this, this, this larger, uh, narrative um, really keeps everybody on the same page. I love that. I, I don't think I've heard uh, it described in, in that way before. You know, of course, we we use 
um, project requirements, documents, and mm-hmm. uh, you know FEMAs and things like that to kind of define um, uh, the the necessities of the project and assess risk and things like that. But I've never heard about it talked. Uh, talked about like that in, in story form, putting the whole thing into it, like a narrative, as you put it. Uh, that sounds really interesting. Now, do you, do you literally like pictorially, uh, visualize these things or is it just, you know, lists of different, different bulleted lists or, or a mix of all of these things? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be stick figures, you know, cause sometimes that's just not appropriate. You know, like I said, engineering is a very broad field. Um, but you could put together a flow chart um, okay, yeah. that's in more or less story form. Okay. Um, like here are all the inputs. Here's everything that needs to get considered. Um, and here's where the whole thing falls apart, where it's broken. And how do we, how do we rebuild, remap that flow chart um, to get us to the, to the end point that we're looking for? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, all right, just a, a few more questions and then I think we'll, we'll wrap things up. If you could put a short phrase on a billboard that would be mm-hmm. seen by every engineer on the planet, what would it say? Well, now you got me all into narrative. So I'd say, um, know the story. Know the story. It's simple as that, you know, and um, whether it's the user, your client, um, all the various stakeholders that are going to, uh, somehow interact with your, with your, with your project, you know, and lock on to those objectives. So yeah, know the story. That's great. That's great. All right. Um, uh, this next question is, uh, I think it's kind of an unusual question to have for a podcast about being an engineer, but I really love it because it just helps us get to know the, the guest, I think on maybe a more personal level. So, um, the question is, what's the most scared you've ever been? And, and you can take that from, you know, personal standpoint, professional standpoint, however you want it. What's the most scared you've ever been? And, and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Um, well, what did I learn from it? I'll put first is just being quite a bit more fearless. You know, there's a, there's a popular bumper sticker, you know, no fear. I think is a brand. Um, uh, and has everything to do with launching spanner and, and how we, um, how my, my business partner and I move with, with spanner it's, we're constantly checking each other on if if what something is fear-based or not, you know, Mm. like don't live in the fear. There's, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just, you know, that's a, that's a brainstem reaction. Um, but the biggest, uh, most fearful thing that sort of reset all of that for me in a big way was back in, uh, in 99, um, our oldest child who was just shy of four years old was diagnosed with cancer. Oh my goodness. And to like hear that from the pediatrician, um, I mean, that, that sense of just everything caving in, you know, the whole world just kind of collapses. Um, I, you know, it's, it's just absolutely terrifying. And I think, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but maybe more so as a parent than, um, if it were my own diagnosis, um, uh, there's just so much more wrapped up in it. Um, in cut to the chase, uh, she's absolutely great. She, she did fabulously. It was, a it was, a a grueling and hellacious experience. Um, but, uh, she's gone on to do great things. Uh, oh, thank goodness. Wow. Yeah. But you know, it's, uh, 
it is a learning experience. You know, it's, I've heard other people say this about experiences like that. Like, um, if you could go back, would you trade it? And obviously knowing that the outcome was positive, it's easy for me to say, no, I wouldn't trade that. I learned a lot. Um, I know plenty of other families who would disagree, you know, if the outcome is different, but for me, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it reset a lot of things, um, change, changes perspectives. Uh, thank you for sharing such a personal story. First off, that that's uh, amazing and so happy to hear everything turned out well. Um, it made me think of, of my answer for this, which is in the same ballpark, maybe mm. not, not so severe as yours, but uh, our son had a seizure one night mm. when we were out at a restaurant and it had mm. never happened before. So this was out of the blue for us. and Terrifying. Yeah, the seizure itself was bad enough, but it, it occurred when he was eating something and he was just a year old. So he didn't, you know, he couldn't tell us what was happening. And all of a sudden he started turning blue and, and then he was out and uh, the you know paramedics came and got him to the hospital. Luckily, in our case as well, everything turned out fine. He's He's great now. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, when you're talking about what's the most scared you've ever been there, anything that happens to your kids, that's a prime candidate right there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we'll, we'll end with, uh, maybe a, a less serious question here, maybe a little lighter note. What, what, what has been one of the most interesting or fulfilling product design projects that, that you've worked on? Yeah. Yeah. I've been asked that before and it's, it's, um, it's tough cause you know, there's so many that are like our babies that, um, and for different reasons that were interesting. Um, so if I, if I expand, but keep it short on, on a couple or three, um, there's one, and I think they're, they're all on our, on our website portfolio section, but you can go look them up, but there's um, a startup called Sana. Um, with an amazing backstory, the founder, um, just out of his own experience and, and, and literally near death experience, um, uh, to deal with chronic pain through helping, just simply helping people sleep and discovered that, um, you can, you can kind of trick your brain into going to sleep by distracting the front half, you know, the, the overthinker part of your brain. Um, with just simple light and, and tones in your ears and, and in your eyes. So it's just this mask. It looks like an Oculus kind of, um, uh, not as bulky, <laughs> but um, very simple light and sound. No pharmaceuticals required. And he puts, he can put you to sleep in 15 minutes. Um, there's another product uh, from a, another startup and it was just, single found, oh, actually it was a partnership these two, uh, uh, two women, um, called M E M M E that, um, changing, um, uh, a user's relationship to birth control pills. So it's a, it's a smart, um, pill dispenser, but not, not dispenser really just a, just a case. Um, and then coupled with a really well executed and brilliant sort of backend in, in the app, but communicating with user via text. So um, it stays super discreet. It just looks like you're texting your best friend, but oh, interesting. you might be texting for some advice. Um, um, and so, um, you know, it was just building some smarts into the case to recognize a few, a few things during that, you know, just during the use patterns. 
Um, and the last one, uh, again, a startup, um, it's a Brava oven. Um, that's, if you like to cook, it's, you got to check it out. It's just, it's a super cool product. It just looks like a, you know, about the same scale as a large-ish microwave, but it, it cooks with high intensity light. Um, the same like light elements that they use in the, in the wafer fabrication industry. Um, like, you know, there has to be triple redundancy safety to turn the lights off. It's trying to open the door because, you know, you could burn your retina kind of thing, but, um, the smarts that are built into it and the AI that they developed, um, uh, is, is really amazing. You can like, you can have your asparagus, your salmon filet and your potatoes, all in the same tray and it'll cook all three like perfectly in the same amount of time at the same time. Wow. Is that because, uh, the light is directed in, in different ways? Well, it has like, these, it has three targeted? zones. Okay. Yeah. It has three zones and they Got are it. fairly directional. Yeah. Um, but there's a camera and they've trained the AI to recognize, ah, I see, you know, okay. um, how to, how do you tell whether, food is, is approaching the right state and when to Neat. go hotter, cooler, whatever. Very cool. When you were talking about the, um, the, the sleep mask, I was mm -hmm. thinking to myself that over the years, I have noticed that when I'm trying to fall asleep, there's a little trick that I'll do. And it's, it's to count backwards from 999, but it's not just counting. I visualize the numbers and mm -hmm. something about visualizing the numbers specifically tricks my brain to stop fretting about whatever's going on, right? Whatever happened that day, what I have to do tomorrow. And it, it focuses on, on the numbers. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, that, that's worked really well. It, and it's, but it's not just counting. I have to visualize the numbers where it doesn't uh -huh. work. I, I wonder if there's, if it's a similar principle as, is this sleep mask that your team developed. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it could be, um, cause you know, your, your, your frontal cortex is trying to make sense of everything that's all of all the input. Yeah. Um, so like with the, with the lights and the sound, it, there's no pattern to it that it is recognizable. And so it's desperately trying to create one where there isn't. And, uh, so it gets distracted. And like you're saying, it's, if it's, if it's working to visualize these numbers, it has, now it has a task. Yeah. Um, then, then the rest of your brain, um, can kind of sneak up on it, you know, yeah. Usur usurp control. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, very cool. Uh, Arna, what a delight this has been speaking with you. You're just a, a fountain of wisdom and knowledge in the engineering space. Thank you for sharing your time. Is, is there anything else that you think we should talk about that we haven't hit on yet? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, I mean, you and I get to go on talking about design all afternoon. So I think, we, I think we could leave it at that. All right. Sounds good. Well, Arna, thank you again. I really appreciate you being with me today. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks, Aaron. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.